For Arizona Public Media, I'm Vanessa Barchfield, in for Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. We're devoting this whole show to the foods that grow in our backyard here in Southern Arizona. It may be a scorcher today, but we're heading outside. First, we'll spend some time under the sun foraging for choya buds on the Tohono O'odham Reservation. Then we'll talk to Gary Nabhan. He's an expert on desert harvesting who has too many titles to list, but among them are nature writer, ethnobotanist, and founding director of the Center for Regional Food Systems and a visit to an organic farm nestled behind River Road that's doing a whole lot more than just growing vegetables. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The blossoming of Tucson's foodie scene in recent years and its designation as a UNESCO World City of Gastronomy has raised interest in the city's rich agricultural history and native food lineage. I spent some time this spring learning about one desert food that the Tohono O'odham people have eaten for many, many generations, and that itself is going through a bit of a culinary renaissance. That's the choya bud. First, I went out foraging with some local experts and then spent a day at a farm that prepares the buds for consumption. Here's my story. It's a gusting desert day when I go out foraging on the Tohono O'odham Reservation with my guides, Tanisha. My name is Tanisha Tucker and uh, I'm half T.O. Thana O'odham. And there's Tracy. Hi, I'm Tracy Hughes-Hamilton and these are my kids, Eric. Bustamante and Tonali Bustamante. Turtle Eric. Turtle Eric? Yeah, his name is Turtle Eric. Okay. Eric's four and a half and is a big fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Tonali's too and brings her Tickle Me Elmo for company, which sings this song that you'll be hearing throughout the story. Anyway, here's Tracy again. We have mixed origins and um, Mexican and Choctaw, Yaqui blood, as well as uh, we're related to Autumn. Tracy and Tanisha are friends and have been harvesting together for many years. Not the case for my other guide, Rusty. My name is Rusty Ramirez, uh, and I have Aravaipa Apache, Opata, and Mayo Indian. This is Rusty's second time gathering choya buds, and here's why she wanted to learn. My nana's moving to Washington, and they don't have choyas there, so... I was going to dry them out and send them to her. We start walking towards a patch of choyas, and Tracy stops us. Before I start picking, I need to uh, make an offering, and my, and my offering's a song, but I'd prefer not to have it recorded, if that's okay. So I pause my recorder while she sings the Itoi morning song, which she explains honors the plants and lets them know we're coming. She finishes, and the recorder goes back on. Come on, guys. We walk up to a choya plant with all of the essential tools of the trade. A bucket and... And tongs, definitely for the choya buds, tongs. Just like the cactus they grow on, choya buds are covered in spikes. Tanisha stretches her tongs out and uses them to grasp a spiky bud. So when you just grab them, you just click them like that and that's it. And then you pop them in your pan. Simple enough, right? There are other things to keep in mind though, like today's wind. Oh yes, the wind. 
So you always want to, and you will learn this if you do pick, you want the wind to be behind you because if the wind's blowing towards you and you pull these buds off, all the thorns will fly in your face. <laughs> thorns are an inevitable hazard, but... When, you, when, you're, um, when you're used to picking cactus foods, you're really, you know, you get used to the needles sometimes, you know, and eventually, you know, you might take them out tomorrow. Or, <laughs> or your body will push them out. Your body pushes like them out. Like yeah. They don't bother you though? Mm-mm. I'm gonna do one. Can you tell how old the Choya is by its size? Like, you can't saworo, like how many limbs it has? Not, no. Not really, just of course the larger ones, I just assume they're a little bit older, but I, no, not too much. Can you, Tracy? Tracy says she can tell how old they are by the thickness of the base. If you see something like this, you know, you're looking at like, you know, probably 10 or 15 years old. You know, you, I've seen some, I've seen some that are, you know, maybe not this big around, but really thick, you know, and half of them half of them is dead and the other half is alive you know so they're just they have their their funny way you know and they're all misshapen and you know beautiful <laughs> i say yeah that's how people are we're all misshapen but we're beautiful <laughs> as we get older we're misshapen we move from plant to plant, plucking buds. Tanisha tells me, though, that almost as important as the buds we pick are the ones we leave. We never like to completely strip the choyas, even the saguaros, when we're picking because we like to leave them, some of them to bloom. And, of course, we have to remember the animals and everybody else who enjoys, you know, all the desert, desert uh, foods that are out here. So, like, what... How much do you want to leave? Um, I usually kind of pick more on the bottom. If there's a, the top, sometimes is just, of course, inaccessible. But you know, <laughs> you don't want to get, you don't want to strip it completely down. So you know, I leave what about maybe fifty percent? Yeah, fifty to sixty percent. Tracy says she worries a bit as more people become interested in desert harvesting. When you're not really brought up in these ways and you don't have that cultural background, you don't really have. Um, the, I guess it's a respect for the family of Choya here, and so mm -hmm, they're living, they're living beings. You know, they're the the plants, the Choya buds, the Sawaro, the Ocotillo, all these plants here. They're our relatives, and we treat them respectfully, and and that's why we share the songs. That's why we have the blessings. That's why, you know, we honor their, we honor their lifespan. She says her parents' generation didn't really learn too much about desert foods, but she wants her kids to understand that their lives are connected to these plants. That's a good amount, no? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Having picked just enough, we head back to our cars. Our stomachs are growling now, and Rusty pulls out a bag of buds from her first harvest, which was last week. I would just double check them. <laughs> what she means by that is double check that the thorns are gone. Mm, I need another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those yeah, are good. Mm, those are really good. Rusty put so a lot of work into prepping the buds from what she picked off the plants into what we're snacking on. And to learn about that process, a few days later, I head to the San Javier co-op farm. Here, you won't often hear them called choya buds, but by their Tejona name. Chora. Chora. Yeah, chora. That's produce coordinator Jamie Encinas teaching me how to say it. It's C-O-C-H-O-L-I-M, right? Um, no, it's C-I-O-L-I-M. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> totally wrong. <laughs> Today, Jamie's working with Raymond Anton and Gabriel Mendoza to process more than 10 pounds of recently harvested choitum. The first step is dealing with the thorns. Raymond and Gabe spread the buds over a large mesh screen and shake it back and forth. Thorns are falling to the ground and eventually the majority come off. Then you will go over it with the, the sugar. Um, how do you say English, the sugar? Basically, it's creosote twigs bundled together and used to brush off the leftover thorns. How are they looking? They're pretty much cleaned up. Most of the thorns came off. It's good enough to throw in the pot now. That's Raymond. He tosses the buds gently into a huge pot of slowly boiling water, heated by a mesquite campfire. We're not really cooking it. We're just kind of getting them nice and plumped up with water. While the buds simmer, Jamie tells me that for a time, choya bud harvesting was rare, but that's changing. And one of the farm's missions is to teach the Tohono community about this food that grows all around them. She says there are a lot of reasons for passing knowledge of the choitum down through the generations. And one very important one is the nutrients that are packed into each and every bud. Two tablespoons is equal to one glass of milk, so it has a lot of calcium in there, as well as some pectines in there to help lower your blood sugar. Could you describe the flavor of choitum? For me, it's um, like... When I first had it, I had it as a kid, and it was really just tangy. That's Gabe again. Did you like it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've always had the taste for it. I mean, at first, like, it was because there really um, wasn't a taste to compare it to. Like, now they people have come to us that have had it for the first time and said that it was close to an artichoke or asparagus, something like that for them, um, which I, I can see. I can see that. But uh, to you, mostly, it just it tastes like chodim? Yeah, to me, it has that natural flavor and taste of the desert. A while has passed now, and we check on the choitum again. Looking good. Um, you can feel the the hardness and the texture. You want it to be a semi-soft, not too hard. And then when you eat it, you want it to be um, soft and not so much crunchy. That's another thing. When it's, when it's cooked and you just start t testing it to see if it's soft enough, and you bite one, and then you're like, oh, let's get another one. <laughs> At least it's healthy. It's breakfast, yep, it's <laughs> breakfast. I didn't have milk this morning, so I had choya buds instead. <laughs> he scoops buds out of the pot, and this is the point at which the choitum can take two different paths. On the one hand, they're ready to be eaten or used in dishes like the co-op farm's Phyllis Valenzuela does. It's versatile. You can use it in soups and quiches, scrambled eggs. Um, I even made uh, choya bud and cheese tamales and uh, empanadas. <laughs> You're making me hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody says when I talk to them about food. <laughs> On the other hand, the choya buds can now be dried and preserved, which is what Jamie's doing now. From the pot, we're taking them and we're going to put them on our screens so they'll um, be able to dry out. Um, this process will probably be take anywhere from one to two weeks. While they're out in the sun, the choya buds turn into shriveled nuggets about the size of a black bean. Do you know how long people have been eating choitum? God, probably hundreds of years, maybe even thousands. This is what, you know, our ancestors grew up on. And we continue that, try to continue that tradition now. That's one of our goals here is to provide that education for the next generation coming up. Because after us, they will be the one to carry it on. And we will, that's what we will want for them to continue to do what we're doing here. 
So throughout this whole process, the foraging, the removing the thorns, the cooking and the drying, it becomes very clear to me that it's so much more than choya buds that's being preserved. The San Javier Co-op Farm holds choya bud harvesting workshops during the spring. They'll also be running a mesquite workshop soon. You can learn more on their website, that's sanjaviercoop.org. Choyas are, of course, just one of the many edible plants growing in the Sonoran Desert. I spoke recently with an expert on the topic, Gary Nabhan, who started off our conversation describing the five harvesting seasons in this region. The first being the spring, when the Palo Verdes, mesquite, and yucca come into bloom. And uh, that is uh, the things that benefit from the winter rains. Then we go into the dry pre-summer season, where a number of things like acorns and saguaros begin to produce fruit that are edible because they want to drop their mature seeds so that the summer rains can germinate the seeds in the fruit. And so they actually get their seeds or fruits mature just before the rains come. Then, of course, we have the summer rainy season from San Juan's Day in late June into September, where we see just an abundance of other cactus fruits like prickly pear and uh, the wild greens like amaranth greens or calites. And then we go into the uh, late fall season where we get a lot of seeds and capsules from dried fruits and pods. Some things in the desert like mesquite and elderberry can actually uh, bloom twice. So you can use either the flowers or harvest the fruits twice. And then the winter months, we have a lot of root crops that are easy to dig up just below the surface, wild onions and things that'll start appearing in January and we can harvest through sometimes March and April, but, but they really start in the winter. So there's five seasons of desert harvest and each has its unique gifts. And is there anything that people should watch out for and specifically not harvest, either because it's endangered or not healthy for human consumption? Well, first of all, we encourage people to learn about the sustainable harvesting of any of these things because you don't need to destructively harvest agave or yucca flowers. We always leave some back for the bats or the birds because we want to share the desert's abundance with them. And then there's some things like the wild greens, some of which that require special preparation or caution not to eat too many. So lamb's quarters and uh, a little thing called patota, uh, uh, spinach that has its leaves on the ground. We thoroughly wash them and sometimes scrub the leaves to get off uh, oxalate crystals that uh, can pose anti-nutritional problems uh, for people in lesser, uh, carefully washed and scrubbed. But they're absolutely delicious. They've been used for thousands of years without any uh, negative health benefits to the eaters. So these aren't hard things to learn. And we have an abundance here in the desert. Uh, we think that this place is barren, but that's uh, its abundance is hidden to many people, yet there's enough for all of us to eat without over-harvesting the desert here. <laughs> 
Do you have the impression that people are becoming more interested in desert harvesting and foraging? We have such good teachers and mentors that can guide people into using these plants that are unfamiliar with them. The Desert Harvesters Group is one, Mission Gardens, the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, Native Seed Search, uh, John Slattery's uh, uh, wild foraging tours and classes all guide people in appropriate use. And Desert Harvesters are soon to release a new book on 14 uh, wild foods of the Tucson Basin, including mesquite again, that I think will broaden the use of plants that are really in abundance, like mesquite and prickly pear, of course, but not used as much as those two that now Tucson celebrates through its city of gastronomy designation and its many festivals. So we have a lot going on. And for people who are unsure or uneasy about starting on their own, look for these classes at the Desert Museum or Tucson Botanical Garden, and they will help you jump into the dance. Is there one really surprising fruit here in our desert landscape that's edible and people don't really know about? Well, I think people forget that we have the wild chiltepine that's in many of our salsas and uh, specialty products uh, with products from Sonora that grow within uh, 25 miles of Tucson. And so I'm always surprised when I find them in the Desert Canyon because people tend to forget that they grow in the U.S. as well as Mexico. But I think the most astonishing food we have is this a root parasite called sand food that grows out in the sand dunes near Yuma that must be one of the rarest life forms of a plant and it produces a delicious sort of cucumber or melon-like stalk that comes up through the sand a foot and a half and then produces little blooms on the top of sand dunes. So that's sort of an extraordinary connection to the driest parts of the desert that remind us that that uh, Deserts aren't food deserts. <laughs> um, we really shouldn't make desert a pejorative term. We just need to learn how to respect and use the wealth here. That was nature writer, ethnobotanist, and founding director of the Center for Regional Food Systems, Gary Nabhan. If you've listened to public radio recently, chances are you've heard stories about urban farms. Today, we take you to another one. But Felicia's farm is very different. My name is Sofia Montes. We are at Felicia's farm. Felicia's farm is nestled on a plot of land just off of River and Dodge on Tucson's north side. Sophia runs the farm along with Ashton Inskeep. I'm Ashton Inskeep, the volunteer coordinator. Two other staff members and a team of volunteers. Everything grown here is organic. They have chickens and goats and they make their own compost. In most ways, Felicia's farm is like any other urban farm around the country. But it's unique in one important way. What's grown here doesn't end up at farmers markets. The main purpose of the farm is to feed and help people in need. Sophia and I are in the farm's truck now, heading to the Casa Maria soup kitchen, where all of the fruits and veggies from Felicia's farm will be donated to Tucson's neediest. We're all about giving away everything we produce so we don't sell a single thing. We're 100% donated 
stuff. That includes all our vegetables, um, all of our eggs. Like if you go to Casa Maria and you see what is usually donated, it's a lot of processed food. It's a lot of like breads and carbs and just things that are not necessarily the healthiest choice. And so we want to be able to give people um, supermarket or you know, or even sometimes even better quality food in my opinion because it's all organic and sustainably grown and harvested that day. It's about as fresh as you can get without having it in your own backyard. Located on Tucson's south side, Casa Maria hands out about 600 sack lunches each day and gives out bulging grocery bags of food that's donated from grocery stores around town. Most of Felicia's farm's veggies get distributed in those bags and go to families. Today, Sophia has just about 60 pounds to donate, but during peak growing times of the year, as much as 600 pounds of fruit and vegetables go to Casa Maria each week. Bye, Sophia. Bye, Thank Brian. You. Thank you. Really <laughs> this is a farm that began six years ago with a mission. I'm David Cutler, and I am the founder of Felicia's Farm. David started the farm on a four-acre plot behind his house, but he's not a farmer. He's a certified public accountant. And I own a national and international tax practice. When I go meet him at his east side office, I'm expecting to find someone dressed in a suit and tie and maybe slicked back hair, clean shaven. But instead, he has flowing wiry hair and a long gray beard. He's wearing baggy jeans and flip flops and fringes of the Jewish tzitzit hang down below his shirt. He looks like he belongs on a kibbutz more than in this accounting office. Felicia was David's wife. Um, I met my wife on a tour to Israel when I was 16. You know, we were going to camp together and we met and fell in love. And, you know, she was my high school sweetheart. And, um, you know, it was just a great relationship. Felicia was from Tucson, so David came here for college and eventually they got married, had kids. She just, you know, she just helped everybody. I mean, she was, you know, she was the carpool every all the kids wanted to be in. Um, she helped at the synagogue. She helped at the school. I mean, she was always running to help anybody who was less fortunate. She just she just did. Felicia had health problems for many, many years and ultimately was diagnosed with a rare immune disease called Bichette's. The Cutlers traveled around the country for her care, but she got sicker and sicker. She passed away June 6, 2009, and I woke up one morning a couple months later, and I, you know, I was trying to think of a way to you know, honor the memory of, of, of Felicia. And I thought, what better way to honor her but to go ahead and have a farm and have people come and and help out and to feed the hungry. And, you know, the farm is, is very much her and the way it's grown. One of the ways it's grown is with the help of the community. A lot of people come to Felicia's farm to help out. Sometimes farm volunteers who knew Felicia lend a hand, but the vast majority don't have a connection to her. They come for many different reasons, says Ashton, the volunteer coordinator. Yesterday we just had a Girl Scout troop come. They painted the shed <laughs> and they did some weeding. A lot of times it's uh, just sort of a mixed bag for who comes. U of A students, we have um, a high school group that comes twice a week. Um, we have Mormon missionaries that come a lot, um, retired people, all sorts of people. We're very relaxed about volunteering. There's no um, orientation or anything. It's, it's just come as you want, as long as we're open. <laughs> One thing they're not relaxed about is planning. Sophia, the farm manager, says she puts a lot of thought into what she grows. It's really hard to grow things that I think are culturally relevant or accessible to people. The most exotic thing we have right now is bok choy. 
but that's pretty mild and I feel like people can use it you know in a lot of different ways um, but yeah I don't want someone to get something in their grocery bag and then be like, what do I do with this? Like, what is this? I don't know. Sophia continues her work, and nearby, a Russian woman named Angelina shows up to milk the goats, as she does twice a week. She doesn't speak English, but she coos to the goats in her native tongue and pets them behind their horns. They love it, because I can't reach there. So. That's Ashton again, introducing me to the goats. Her name's Godelis, goddess of the goats. <laughs> this is Juana. This is Lucy. That's Lupita. Across the farm in the chicken coop, this is our chicken mansion. The chickens are doing what chickens do. Every chicken lays about an egg every 17 hours. Those eggs also end up at Casa Maria, about 130 dozen of them each week. The farm recently got chicks, too. I love the little chick sounds. I ask Ashton what she likes most about her job. I worked on a very fancy goat farm before this. Uh, north of San Francisco, we sold cheese at $30 a pound. Totally different clientele, you know, selling to super rich people. And it just seemed like there's a lot of other people you can affect with food and that need it more. And the donation part's beautiful. To be able to give to people who don't have fresh food, access to vitamins, um, or fresh eggs, so. Yeah, it makes me feel good. <laughs> David, the founder, says it makes him feel good too. And this is just the beginning. He wants to get fresh produce to more of Tucson's hungry and to get people outside with their hands in the soil. That's the thing. Felicia's farm is more than an urban farm. And it's doing more than feeding the hungry. It's just really, it's everything. It's family and charity and caring and helping that... You know that Felicia. You know that was that was really Felicia's life, and she uh, and it's being it's being you know relived daily on the property, and and it makes me feel very good every day when I go out there and I see all the goodness that it creates. To learn more about volunteering at Felicia's farm or to read about Casa Maria, the soup kitchen where the farm's produce is donated, visit our website. That's azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show comes to you from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. This week's show also featured songs from Naima Moore and John Convertino's album, The Western Suite and the Siesta Songs. Our production engineer is Jim Blackwood, and executive producer is Peter Michaels. Filling in for Mark McLemore as producer and host this week, I'm Vanessa Barchfield.